we have uh, something to celebrate this morning. It, I'm sure it's not like superficial, legal and everything, but it's on its well on its way. The Hamiltons picked up a little baby girl yesterday, a little girl named Lila that was born yesterday, the day before, a couple days ago. She's a baby. Let's put it that way. That's something for us to enjoy together and celebrate and um, we have a new baby. That's the best way to understand it because we all participated in that. Uh, so let's start in prayer this morning. <clears throat> Lord, what an amazing, amazing journey and uh, short journey or just really um, abrupt uh, where the need was presented and the people of God gathered and you provided and um, you gave life to a little girl. You placed her in the arms of one of your people. And um, we pray for this little girl, Lord. We pray for Aaron and Stephanie. and We celebrate new life, and we pray for spiritual life. We pray that little Lila will see uh, the truth of Christ crucified and risen at a very young age, and that she'll be an early worshiper and a, a uh, zealous worshiper and a persevering worshiper to her last breath. I pray for Aaron and Stephanie. Thank you that they have been given this opportunity to um, shepherd a new little life and adopt into their home and, and family, and that we have had the opportunity and privilege to participate in that. We count it a sweet privilege. Uh, we enjoy the gospel in, um, in our adoption as we consider this new life. Lord, also in these next few minutes, I want to lift up another church in our community, Harvest Bible Church in Brad Strand. I want to pray for the church, Lord, and pray that they will be uh, one as uh, the cross achieved and uh, that they will um, be like-minded and enjoy Christ together. I pray, too, that they'll be salty and bright and aromatic in whatever context that you have them, whether it's work or between Sundays as families or in their neighborhoods. Uh, pray for Brad and his family, Lord. I pray that he is enjoying you, that it is just spilling over onto a people and onto his family first, onto his wife even before that. And I uh, pray that his family will not be sacrificed on the altar of ministry, but will be his primary ministry, and that you'll just flow over onto a people through what you're doing through Brad to his family. Lord, pray too for our attitude, uh, relative Harvest Bible Church and other Christian churches in our community. We pray for a spirit of like-mindedness and a spirit of celebrating each other and not secretly celebrating when another is languishing, another one is struggling, but truly cheering for other churches and begging for your glory in those other contexts and those other peoples. And uh, we... We are heartbroken at, in some ways, the division in the church. Um, and, Lord, we just pray for just a real integrity, even among different denominations, a, um, even differences within the faith, that we can truly enjoy the essentials together and cheer for each other and pray for great things for your glory. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray that we will have a really... Um, high view of what you have done in the cross and what you've achieved and what, you, what exactly you've gathered. If we've forgotten who we are, I pray that we will remember through the work of the Holy Spirit and the exposition of the Word. I just pray that you'll speak in spite of me this morning and that you'll be enjoyed. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Turn to Ephesians 
chapter 2. <clears throat> I know. I don't know what to do about it. Nineteen ninety, I graduated from A and M and went off to uh, went into the Marine Corps. I was commissioned as an infantry officer. Went not as an infantry officer, as an officer initially, and went through initial training in about six months out in Quantico, Virginia, and then some infantry training that lasted about three months. And then I went out to my unit. I met up with a unit in Okinawa, Japan, and. Uh, I was amazed at the quality of the young Marines that was all men in an infantry unit that I was serving with. I was never surprised at the consistency, though. The commitment that these men shared that joined our unit um, as they came from boot camp and they came from infantry training. These, these guys, I think they saw the posters and they saw the commercials and something in them really resonated with what they saw there. So they had kind of this common bond and this common pursuit of, of a challenge. At boot camp, I think, and infantry training, I think they were stretched and they were challenged. And they rose to the occasion. And they showed up to their units like our unit was 2nd Battalion, 9th Marines. They showed up to their unit sharp and tough and driven, and eager, at least initially. My fellow lieutenants and I recognized over the course of time, though, we began to recognize a trend. The trend was probably already there. We began to recognize it, though, and pay attention to it. A weird trend with these young hard chargers that showed up to the unit. We realized that these young men who entered as hard charging studs soon became soft Distracted, disinterested, disengaged slobs. Came at different rates for different people, but it was almost uniform. Their uniforms were sloppy, their barracks were messy, and their weapons were unsat. It's like in some way, when they showed up to the unit over the course of time, they forgot who they were. They forgot the title that they wore. They had forgotten what they joined as and were pursued or were pursuing. What we realized over time is that these dudes joined expecting a challenge and they got it at first. They wanted to be part of something and they had been up until the time they joined their unit. And then their weeks were full of room inspections, weapons inspections, and uniform inspections and just pure, lame, unmanly, unchallenging stuff. So we had a plan. Our plan that we came up with was something called the He-Man Woman Haters Club. <laughs> if you ever watched The Little Rascals, you know that we didn't invent the He-Man Woman Haters Club. It was actually something that was around long before we came up with it. But we reappropriated the He-Man Woman Haters Club. And what we did with these young Marines and really with all of our platoons, the lieutenants collaborated on this as we tackled one peak at a time on Camp Pendleton. This is in Southern California. Camp Pendleton doesn't have really mountains per se, like the Rockies, but they're also not like knolls or hills. They're somewhere in between, and they're challenging, and it takes about an hour, sometimes two hours, to run to the top of one of them. So two or three mornings a week, we challenge, or challenge ourselves with climbing, running to the top of one of these peaks. 
we eventually ran up every peak on Camp Pendleton one at a time. And I want to tell you, it was brutal, and it pushed them, and they became part of something that gave them direction and challenged them. It's kind of funny to laugh about it, the He-Man Woman Haters Club, but what happened when we were doing that is it resonated with who they thought a Marine ought to be. We found that this hour or two of demanding physical training in the mornings raised the bar for them and what they were doing reconciled with what they imagined it meant to be to be a Marine. I was talking with Brad one night on his back porch. <clears throat> we realized together, sharing with him some of those observations about my time in the Marine Corps, and we realized together that this can very easily show up in the church. In fact, whole churches can be flabby and soft and disinterested and disengaged and disattracted. Whole churches can forget who we are. Once hard-charging new believers, we've seen some of them in the baptism pool these last few weeks. Some of you are those hard-charging, zealous new believers right now. Once hard-charging new believers can later look like bags of donuts, spiritually unfit, with no direction, part of nothing. We realize that a new believer has been confronted with a cross. A new believer has been confronted with blood, with suffering, and with glory. So their zeal and their hunger for the Lord initially is in keeping with what they've encountered. But the problem is, for so many, the faith just becomes, let's keep it out of the ditches later. Christy shared with me a quote that she read on Facebook from a recent friend, Facebook friend. It's from the book called Crazy Love. Listen to this. It's crazy if you think about it. The God of the universe, the creator of nitrogen and pine needles, galaxies and E minor, loves us with radical, unconditional, self-sacrificing love. And what is our typical response? We go to church, sing songs, and try not to cuss. Faith can so easily be reduced to just keeping out of the ditches. Marines, just keep your boots shiny. That's what it means to be a Marine. Wait a minute. It doesn't reconcile with who this is supposed to be. It doesn't link up. The journey can so easily become just keep it out of the ditches. As those initial images of cross, blood, suffering fade so fades the zeal and the joy and the hunger because the Christian bar of simply attending church services and keeping it out of the ditches doesn't reconcile with the cross that we initially picked up so we can so easily forget who we are. This message today, I hope and pray, will connect with who we are. I hope and pray that it's going to be direction providing I hope it will open our eyes to the fact that we are indeed part of something. I'm hoping that today we can remember who we are. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to focus primarily on verses 11 through 22, but I want to start in verse 1 because anytime I have the chance to unpack, even if it's lightly, verses 1 through 10, I'm going to do it. I don't think there is as condensed and tight 10-verse section of Scripture as these first 10 verses of chapter 2. We're going to focus on 11 through 22. But for the sake of context, and just because it's so good, we're going to read the first 10. 
And you, Paul is writing to the Ephesians, he says, You guys, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. We read this passage last week. You might remember the context. We were looking at this through the lens of Ezekiel chapter 16, this bloody baby thrown out into the field to die. Umbilical cord not even cut. I mean, that baby is hopeless, helpless, and doomed. And Paul says, that's what you were. But then he incorporates the Jews in there. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, the sweetest two words in our Bible, I think. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, didn't leave us bloody babies laying cast out in the field. Being rich in mercy, even though we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. On that Sunday morning when Jesus stepped out of that tomb, that dewy Sunday morning, we stepped out with him. He made us alive together with Christ. And he didn't just make us alive. He did something else. Listen. By grace you've been saved. He made us alive and then he raised us up with him and seated us with the victor in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So not only we spared from death and made to live like in Ezekiel 16 and told that bloody baby, I passed you by and I said, live. Not only does he cause us to live, but then he seats us with the victor in the place of honor. And he did this so that in the coming ages, in 2009, on July the 19th, this morning at 11.16 or whatever it is time, in the coming ages, on this morning, we, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Surgical kindness in the person and work of Christ Jesus. He says, in case you've forgotten, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. We are his trophies of grace sitting on his eternal mantle. Us, the likes of us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should go and walk in them. I don't know if there's a more concentrated, thorough explanation of the gospel in our Bibles. It's one to study. It's one to know like the back of your hand. All of the elements are there. Depravity, hopelessness, consequences of sin, and the kindness and love and grace and mercy of our God to spare us and to honor us and to save us so we'll be trophies of his grace sitting on his good mantle. And then we walk in good works, not to earn it, but because we've been saved for it. Now we're going to move to verse 11. It's in response to this, therefore, we had to engage the first 10 verses just to appreciate what the therefore is. Therefore, in response to what's happened there, therefore, you guys remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, the Jews which is made in the flesh by hands, Paul points out. Remember that you guys, you Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. But like those two sweet words in verse 4, but God, here's another two sweet words. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, 
have been brought near. What brought near? How? By the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility that is between Jew and Gentile and between all of us and our Creator. And he came and preached to you who were far off and peace preached peace to you who were far off, like Galatia, like Ephesus, like Greenville, like Thessalonica, like Dallas, like Caddo Mills, like Commerce. And he preached peace to those who were near, like Jerusalem. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, all of you, Jews and Gentiles. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the title of this message this morning, A Dwelling Place for God. This message this morning is about the church. I want to unpack this passage. You'll need your Bibles. If you don't have one in your hands, man, I urge you to grab one. I want you to see what I'm unpacking here. I want to draw out, first of all, a contrast between the Gentile and the Jew. You have to appreciate the polar extremes that Paul is dealing with here to incorporate those distances and those crossways people that we come in contact, in contact with every day are those we may be crossways with. First of all, there's the Gentile. The Jew referred to them as the uncircumcision. They worshiped Greek and Roman gods like Aphrodite in Corinth. In Ephesus, they wor- worshiped a goddess named Artemis in, uh, in Ephesus. Ar- Artemis was also named Diana. It was another name for her. She's the goddess and protectress of wildlife. She had an aversion to marriage. She's called the virgin goddess. She was anti-sex. It's important. They had an amazing temple built there that was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. It had 100 massive columns in it. Some of the columns were carved intricately. And also in this temple, they had a meteorite that was somehow built into the structure, and it was believed to have been placed there by Diana herself. And worship was conducted by eunuch priests, another key ingredient. I want us to understand the Ephesians because this is going to help us understand this distance. See, the worship of Artemis is very different from the Corinthian context. In the Corinthian context, they worshiped Aphrodite. If you know anything about mythology, you know that Aphrodite was not chaste. She was the other extreme. In fact, their temples were full of prostitution. In Ephesus, man, it was different. It's easy to see a severe separation between a Jew and a practicing Aphrodite worshiper. It's easy to see that contrast there. But when we're talking about Ephesus, we're talking about something different. These guys could be summarized as loving and protecting wildlife, practicing practicing chastity, and they likely recycled. (laughs) 
I mean, these guys were echo lovers. We could look at them now and consider that likely today they would be considered the fine, upstanding citizen these days. One who's not loose morally and one who loves the environment. And Bambi. Well, what Paul says to them, he says, man, I'm not just speaking to some Aphrodite vile, wicked worshipers. I'm talking to those who might be considered fine and upstanding. He says, you guys, you were separate, alienated strangers with no hope without God in the world. You were doomed. Even though you recycled, even though you loved deer and squirrels, even though you didn't have sex with everyone, you were separate because you weren't sharing the covenants and the promises of God. That's what separated them. Not their performance. Not their moral standards. And then there's the Jew, the circumcision. The Jew worshipped Yahweh, or maybe the law, kind of depending on the Jew you're talking about. The Jew had a rich heritage as a people, starting with Abraham. The Jew had a very high view of law and holiness. These were the godly, while the Gentiles were considered the godless, worldly pagans. So get the context here. A Jew is writing to some Gentiles... And he is saying, relative to the Jews, you guys were separated from Christ. You were alienated from God's people. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. Even though you may have had some high moral standards. You were separated from God. And then verse 13, those two sweet words. But now in Christ, you are brought near by his blood. Paul says here, he says, he is our peace. And he unpacks this in two directions. First of all, verse 14. I want you to see these two directions because it brings in the sweetness of this peace. Verse 14, he says, he himself, that's for emphasis. He himself, as in no other, is our peace who has made us the Jew and the Gentile, the two polar extremes, the polar opposites in many ways. He's made us both one. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing what separated us, the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He's speaking of a horizontal peace right here. Both Jew and Gentile are made one. The dividing wall of hostility is broken down. There's one new man where there used to be two. And he doesn't just make it where they can survive together. Where they can just exist together. Husband and wife who are just hoping that they can just find a place where we're not ripping each other's heads off. They're not just achieving something that's coexistence. He's actually achieving peace. And the peace that's being described here is actually worship together. Intimate enjoyment together of the table. They could share, Jew and Gentile, the two extremes, the most unlikely two people you could possibly put together. He's saying because of the work of Christ, you can enjoy the intimacy of the table with joy and conviction and wonder and marvel because Christ destroyed what separated them. That's the horizontal piece. And then there's the vertical piece. In verse 16, let's look at it. That he might reconcile us both, this new man, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I told you that's a horizontal hostility and it's a vertical hostility. We're crossways with God. 
apart from Christ. Just examine the word propitiation in your Bible. Look it up and you'll understand what I'm talking about. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, this new man, have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the scandal, the horizontal, excuse me, the vertical scandal of the gospel. That we can now enter the throne room and we can actually enter it boldly. And we can actually enter it engaging our God and calling him Daddy. Abba. That's intimate peace. Not just the absence of conflict, but actually seated with the victor in a place of honor in heavenly places, enjoying our God directly. Once strangers and aliens to his son, his covenants, and the commonwealth of Israel, now we are reconciled horizontally and vertically through Christ. And I want you to know that is only achieved in and through Christ. There is no peace apart from Christ, vertically or horizontally. In a marriage, in a marriage, men and women who are crossways with each other, who hope to reconcile, if you try and do that apart from Christ, you're putting Band-Aids on it. And I promise you, it will rear its ugly head and eat your lunch later. Try and reconcile with friends and do that apart from Christ. Try and reconcile a family and do it apart from Christ. And you're putting band-aids on it. Try and reconcile a church without preaching and enjoying Christ. And it's just going to be a collection of people that are just trying to, not to kill each other. Try and reconcile a community or the world apart from Christ. And you can't do it. We put band-aids on things trying to find peace without Christ. And we may find the absence of conflict for a while. But we will have no real peace we will not experience real intimate table. The picture here is that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints. We are members of the household of God through this work of Christ. And we together, together being the key word, together are built like a stone mansion with the apostles and prophets as the base and Christ as the cornerstone, the structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, and that's where God lives. And we're not talking about this building. Holy Spirit series a few weeks ago developed the picture of God dwelling initially in his tabernacle. Remember when he showed up? Shekinah glory showed up, and Aaron and the priests are bailing out of there like Jack Bauer because his holiness is in there. And the smoke and the fire... Remember the move-in day? And the move-in day for the the temple, Solomon's temple? And the fire and the smoke, the move-in day for the people of God was Pentecost, seven weeks after the cross. The move-in day where the flames of fire rested on each of them. And man, there's this rushing wind. That's the day that God moved into the heart of man. And this did have an individual element to it because those flames of fire rested on each of them. But reading here, engaging this, we realize it also had a corporate impact. God moved into a plural people. He didn't just move into one person. He moved into the people of God, an unlikely people. Polar opposites made one and built together and joined together into a dwelling place for God. What he's writing about here and talking about here is the church. Talked with the elders before, and something we've realized on those Sundays that we've preached about the church that oftentimes we have this feeling, or we fear, that there's this thought of this kind of the universal church. Yeah, I man, I got a really high view of the universal church, but the local church, 
blah. He's not talking about the local church. He must be talking about the universal church. Yeah, that is beautiful, but my local church, blah. Man, you got to engage that whatever disdain you have for even the most frustrating and disappointing and difficult church, realize that is the dwelling place for God. I'm not talking about this building. I'm talking about a people. That's why we're praying for our other churches in our community. We're praying that, man, they're a sufficient and adequate and appropriate dwelling place for God. We can be like the people I'm afraid who were born and raised right next to the Tetons in Jackson Hole. Or like the people that were born and raised right, in, right smack dab in the middle of the Alps. Or somebody that was born and raised right next to the Grand Canyon. They look out their backyard and there it is and they never really appreciate it because they've grown numb to it. And possibly we've grown numb to the glory of the church because it's right down the street in any direction. We can throw a rock and hit any church building. So we have potentially such a low view of the gravity of what we're doing here as a people and what this means. We can grow so numb to it, we can forget who we are and what we're part of. The church is the dwelling place for God. And I'm speaking of the local church, not some imaginary ethereal idea. I'm talking about a bunch of people who fail each other. I'm talking about a bunch of people that will disappoint each other. I'm talking about relationships and friendships that are messy and difficult. That's where God lives. Man, we've got to connect this to even right down the street and even right here where we're gathered this morning, the dwelling place for God. Three things I want to bring out, three ultimate realities regarding this, the gravity of what we're talking about. First of all, is that he made the two one. He broke down the wall of separation. It's hard for us to imagine what that distance must have been like between Jew and Gentile because we, we don't really have anything to compare it to. The only thing that I have that would really, I think, line up that way is how I grew up in the South with the distance between whites and blacks where we had different bathrooms, and this was even fading out by the time I was aware of it. Some of you have that as a reference. You can think back and remember those times where they had different bathrooms or different restaurants or different drinking fountains. Some of us lived through those times and saw a severe racial distance between whites and blacks. But we don't need to have experienced something like this to understand what's being spoken of here. We don't need to have experienced something like this. I bet many of us, if not most of us, have observed and maybe been party to severe separation and alienation between a husband and a wife. Right? Man, I, I'm walking with a few different people in their marriages right now, and what I'm telling them is your marriage starts out as a jungle. According to Genesis chapter 3, where the husband has a desire for, or wife has a desire for her husband, that's not, I'm hot for you, husband. That's, I want to control you, husband. I want to nag you to death and make you into the man I've always imagined you could be. And the other side of that is the man that wants to rule his wife. Man, marriage is a jungle from the outset. Marriage is Jew and Gentile from the outset. Two unlikely people with a vast distance between the two. 
That God over time reconciles. And he says, no, through the work of the cross, I can reconcile that. You know what this separation looks like because I bet you've seen it with a husband and a wife. Or you've seen it with a youth and his parents. Or a friend and a former friend. Maybe you've even seen it in the church. In six years, I've heard a handful of stories. I wouldn't say it's been a lot. But a handful of stories where I hear about a family that visits Crosspoint. And they fill up a row and they sit down and they come for one worship service because they looked around the room and they saw somebody else that 10 years ago made them mad in another church. Now, I ain't going to that church. Remember what happened? We know what this separation looks like. Grab those images. Grab that baggage that we know we've got and that pain and that hopelessness, and consider these realities. Consider that we all were once disconnected and separated and isolated from God and each other. We all were. It's not just a Jew-Gentile thing. It's a man-woman thing. It's a man-friend thing. It's a woman-woman thing. It's all of us. It's a youth-parent thing. We all were once separated. We led separate lives. It's a family-family thing. We led separate agendas. We, led separate, we had separate practices, separate views on life and love. We had different values, different plans, different resources for our relative truth. We had different motives for everything we did, but something happened. Something made us one. Some event at some point in time broke down the separation and the isolation and the disconnection and the differences so that we became one. Something so big and so powerful and so mighty took people separated by geography and culture and religion and actually made them one new people. Not just the coexisting, but actually worshiping together. Something so big and so awesome gathered up people from every tribe and every tongue and every age. I'm not talking chronologically age age either. I'm talking about age like 2,000 years ago. We're caught up in something that happened 2,000 years ago. Something so big gathered up all these people and made them one. Multicolored, multicultured, but with one singular all-connecting reality. That something so big, so awesome, so powerful, so mighty was and is the cross of Jesus Christ. And that alone. He not only broke down the wall between Jew and Gentile, he broke down the wall between rich and poor. We've got both in the church. He broke down the wall between white and black, between old and young, between cool and nerdy. He broke down the wall between pen pusher and wrench turner. He broke down the wall between single and married, between redneck and white collared. He broke down the wall between highly educated and illiterate, between child and parent, between husband and wife. This rugged cross and this perfect man and grace from God in a vacant tomb did what no legislation, no program, no initiative, no scheme, no de- nor design could or ever will do. When you really look at peace initiatives and things like that, they all look pretty pitiful compared to the cross. His cross erased the lines and bound us up together in the most important event in the history of the world. If God can bring together two extremes like a Jew and a Gentile, he can bring anyone together. He can bring 
anybody together to be part of this new humanity. He can bring a husband and wife who are ready to choke each other. Who can't stand the sight of each other. He can bring them together. He can bring together two brothers who are estranged. He can bring together a rebellious youth and his parents. He can bring together former friends who hurt each other. Two were made one. And really, you can insert any two in, that, in there. Jew and Gentile. Insert any two people that are crossways and recognize the cross can reconcile those people. I ask you a question and we'll come back to you later. Christ has already broken down the walls between us and just consider, do we try and build up new ones? Seemingly innocuous, innocent. It's no big deal. Do we build new ones? The second thing from this reality of the work of Christ in the cross and building this new people is that we have become a new humanity. Verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us, that being Jew and Gentile, both one. And then in verse 15, he says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. What you need to see here is that he didn't create this one man, this one person. He created a new humanity. He's talking of people over the ages of every tribe, culture, socioeconomic class that are caught up into this new humanity. It's a singular word that incorporates all these people over the ages, and that's a good way to understand it. It's a whole new mankind that he has created. A whole new people. Look the page before in Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. In my Bible, you just flip one page back and see this sweetness. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor nor female, for you are all, what? One in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Man, when you consider what was achieved in this cross, you realize that we have become a whole new people and we are reconciled actually with the Jew who sang Father Abraham. I actually had somebody ask me this last week. How come we can sing Father Abraham? And I just didn't really have a good answer for him. Kind of, uh, well, uh, just because we always have. That's great evidence right there. He's our father too. We've been reconciled through this finished work. We have become a whole new people. Peter referred to this. I'll share a passage with you. You can jot it down. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He says, you are a chosen race. Just here, new mankind. You're a whole new humanity. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen, once you were not a people, you were a collection of individuals. You were people going all different kind of directions. I just read about all these different plans and motives and dreams that we all had, all these different sources that we had for our ultimate reality says you had all different kind of plans once you were not a people but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy 
This reality, y'all, is one that flies in the face of the notion of church being something you just go to. Man, you go to a Lions Club meeting. You go to the movies. You go to a play. You go to a ball game. You go to a concert, but you don't go to church. Man, some people think it's kind of funny. I'm so militant about don't call that church a building or don't call that building a church. It works both ways. Man, that's more than semantics. That's something that becomes part of you where you see the church as something you go do, a place that you go on the south side of town and something that becomes contained in a day of the week on Sunday morning when we gather. You've got to realize you're part of a people and you're the church on Thursday. You're the church on Tuesday when you're sitting together as a family having breakfast. You're the church on Saturday when you're gathered at the park running around and hitting a baseball. Man, you're just as much, as much the church then as you are now. Church is no more a building than a house is a family. Maybe I'll switch that around. I don't know. Think about that. Church is no more a building than a family is a house. That's a better way to put it. Don't call my church a building. Our church, his church. It is a people. It is not something we attend. It is not something that we go to. It's something that we are, the people of God, the dwelling place for God. Third thing, we are the household of God. I'll show you right there in verse 19 back in Ephesians chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and you're members of the household of God. I was enjoying that term household and thinking about most of y'all, I think, live in a house. I think, I don't know if anybody lives in a hut or a tent. Some of you might. Street. Some of you have. But let's think for a moment about living in a household, the dynamics of household living. Here's a little short list of what household like, household activities go in our house. When Christy gets back from the grocery store, it's usually Christy, not me very much. We drop whatever we're doing and we go out there and help her with the groceries, bring them in. That's one dynamic, small, but there's a little principle behind that we'll engage in a minute. We dine together regularly. We talk together regularly. We share whatever we have. If Evan has a Lego set, Daddy has a Lego set. Right? Man, we share. <laughs> we'll have to talk more about that. We have fellowship. We enjoy each other. We engage each other. We do the work of connecting with each other. Not at every moment are we having these deep, philosophical, theological conversations. They just happen over the course of the time. It's like trying to schedule quality time. You can't do that. Quality time is born in quantity time. We spend time together as a family and things happen. Conversations happen. We discuss life together. We pitch in for, the, for those expenses that are unplanned. We are, and this is the most beautiful thing that hit me. We're a cross-section of generations in a household. We're a cross-section. Now, in the Western household, it's likely just going to be two generations. You know, the parents and then the kids. But in most of the world, you got grandparents, aunts, uncles. you got all kinds of people living in the house. We are a cross-section 
of different generations enjoying and learning from one another. So if the church is the household of God, then it's going to have some of the character of a household. We're going to have everything in common, Acts chapter 2. Right? Somebody has a Lego set? We've all got a Lego set. We're going to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, Romans chapter 12. We're going to drop what we're doing and we're going to help others, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. We're going to fellowship together. We're going to dine together. Here, Lord's Supper. Here, lunch, when y'all go hang out at Molina's or wherever. We're going to pitch in for the expenses. Here, $14,500 raised in one week for an adoption. We're a cross-section of different generations enjoying and learning from one another. Or we're supposed to be. We're a tapestry of generations, of experiences, of gifts, of skills woven together for the glory of God, built together into the dwelling place for God. But the problem that takes place in the church is, I think, the human condition. I've given it a name. It's called the hunker down with your own problem problem. That's typically what we do. And I'm, I'm not picking on Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm using them as an illustration. I know that some people, have, God has used that in their lives, so don't hear me disassembling Alcoholics Anonymous. But it's a great example of what I'm talking about. A bunch of people who are prone to alcoholism who go hunker down with each other and try and brave life and not run to the booze. It's just a great example of what we so easily do where youth only want to hang out with youth. Adults, kids, nuisance. Old people, old. (laughs) Singles, only hang out with singles. Languishing in loneliness. Divorcees, stick with divorcees. I know how you feel, man. He did it to me too. Understand what's going on there. Understand the dynamics because we can come alongside each other. We need somebody in our life that can put their arm around you and say, I know how you feel. But not everybody in our life has to say, I know how you feel. We need to have somebody who comes along and says, I don't know how you feel, but let me share with you what God has done in my life. The alcoholic, if all he's surrounded by is other surviving alcoholics, how sweet would it be if he spent time with a guy who didn't have addictive problems? How might he be rounded out? How might he be strengthened? The alcoholic needs people in his life or her life who aren't struggling with addiction. The youth needs young people and adults and children in his or her life to help him interpret life. The single needs to be around married people and, yes, even divorcees to learn how and how not to be married. The divorcees need to be around families and singles and kids and widows. That's the church. That's the people of God that are reconciled. There are no walls. There are no lines. The lines are blurred. Listen to this passage. Don't turn here. Just listen. A little picture of the household dynamics. In Titus chapter 2, Paul's writing to this pastor, young pastor. He says, as for you, Titus, you teach what accords with sound doctrine. Listen. Older men, 
are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself, teacher, in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing else to say about us. Think about this. The teacher needs a teachee. The old man needs somebody to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled with and around. The older woman needs somebody to be reverent before. Other people to not slander. And younger women to teach. And young women need husbands and children to love like the older ladies are teaching them too. And they need others to be self-controlled and pure and kind among Young men need others urging them to be self-controlled with other people that they're with. Young pastors need others to be on the receiving end of good works. Someone to offer sound speech to. Here's the reality of this community that we're describing. This no walls, no lines community. We come into the fullness of who we are relative to each other. You want to go off in isolation and find yourself? You're not finding yourself. I don't know what you're finding. A monster. You want to come into the fullness of who you are, you come into the fullness of who you are in community. Coming alongside recovering alcoholics, divorcees, married people, older people, younger people, kids, needy people, frustrating people, happy people. You come into the fullness of who you are in this local thing right down the street. It's been so easy to dismiss because, oh, you're talking about the idea. No, I'm talking about this. (laughs) I'm talking about this. I'm talking about the community, the household of God that's made like a fortress of stones fitted together. I was thinking about rebar. The men, you know what rebar is, that metal stuff you put in. Some of the ladies do too. I see some ladies nod and say, I know too. (laughs) It's that metal stuff you put in concrete. And how does rebar lay? Does it just lay parallel? It lays like this. Put the alcoholic next to the guy that doesn't have addictive problems, addictive tendencies. And let some strength come from there being laid crossways. I got into um, cycling again for the last, or the last few months. It's been a long time in, in, in college. I was big time into cycling. and I got this bike that's made from carbon fiber. This thing is bad. It's light. But it's strong, stiff, it's an amazing bike. And the technology that's gone into it. You can actually see under the paint little sections where the words are. You can see the fibers. I read a little, about, a little bit about carbon fiber. Each of the carbon fiber filaments is about the size of, if this is imaginary, the, the size of a hair, a human hair, carbon fiber is about this wide, about that big, about the size of a finger. It's so thin. What they do is they run these things parallel and then they weave them together. The strength comes from the weave. The strength comes from them being woven in cross direction, not all lining up and hunkering down in your own problem problem. This cross fiber, family, single, young person, old person, rich person, poor person, educated person, illiterate person, white person, black community 
walks in the broken down wall environment that the cross achieved. Let me tell you something, man. You want to be part of something that matters? I think God's built that into us. We want to be part of something that matters. You want to be part of something that matters? How about the fiber and rebar of the church? How about the fiber and rebar of the church, even the local one? Not just the idea, but the local one, the dirty one. It's made up of people just like you and me who disappoint each other and frustrate each other. That one, that's the one I'm talking about. Because that's the one Paul's writing about. That's the one God is teaching us about. The one made of people, the ugly one, with real humans. You want to be part of something, be part of something that God places value on. The church. You want your life to matter. Spend yourselves headlong in the church, involved in lives and loves and adoptions and births and deaths and marriages and faith and worship and pain and conviction and accountability. It's all hard, I promise you. All of it. You get your hands dirty. You get your heart broken. That's the church. And that's where God lives. If the sum of your life is just to keep it in the middle of the road and avoid the ditches and to not cuss, you're going to be like those Marines whose lives have just become keeping my boots shiny. Man, I got no use for this. I'm done. I'm going to turn into a slob. You want your life to matter, man. Be involved in something like this. If the sum of your life is just keeping it in the middle of the road out of trouble with tidy, sin-managed lives, then your life is just a series of room inspections and uniform inspections with clean noses and nice parts. That's what your life is about. And I bet what goes along with that is the notion that our church is where I go. It fits. It just fits. It's one of our activities. It's supposed to be a people that you are. Say what we're doing as a church in response to these sort of realities. This is one sermon that's really kind of captured what God has shown the elders and many of us over the course of time. We've considered some of these things, not, not directly, but this passage so sweetly deals with them. Consider this question, if the wall of separation has been broken down through the cross, why do we so easily put back up walls of separation? It's easy to do, I think. It makes it easier. Think about this seemingly innocent wall. Let's separate our children from the adults and go study the Bible together. It's easy, right? Because kids make noise. And kids squirm and they distract us. We could so pay attention if it wasn't for those kids. I mean, think about it. Yet the cross achieved peace. Not just between Jew and Gentile, but between adult and kid. Real intimacy, not just coexisting together, but real intimacy, sharing a table with your children. The cross achieved that. Why would we build back walls just for the sake of ease? Can you imagine how hard it must have been to walk through and walk with a Jew if you were a Gentile? Or imagine being a Jew, walking with a Gentile. Yucky. I mean, they didn't even go in each other's homes. The law told them that the other home made them unclean. The kind of things they ate would make them unclean. Imagine that being the person sitting right next to you in the pew. That's what the cross achieved. 
So why would we build back up walls for the sake of ease? We're not a people of ease. We're people of truth. And it's probably going to mean doing it the hard way. (laughs) It's probably going to be more difficult. It's probably not what's going to come natural. What comes natural is finding the easiest path of least resistance. And if we're members of the household of God, how can we engage each other like people would in a healthy household? How can we do that? Can we just do that on one few minutes that we gather together on a Sunday morning? Can we possibly hope to engage each other in intimate peace? Something we've been convicted about is that we need to work despite what our culture says, despite what's easy, despite even what a lot of churches do. We need to work to walk in what was achieved in the cross. So we need to disassemble walls that we may have put up. Really, this is going to have an impact on our philosophy of ministry. And it is having an impact. If you wonder why things are so kind of simple and streamlined and why we don't have 8,000 different activities where 8,000 different people are going 8,000 different directions, because we have a high view of this. We have a high view of this, the local thing where we gather and enjoy each other. And we don't want to cordon people off just because it's easier. We also don't want to make it a golden calf where we never have a time where we spend talking just with our children. But this is going to impact our philosophy of ministry. When given the choice of gathering as a community or breaking up as individuals or age groups, we're likely going to go with community. It might make for noisier settings, but that's okay. It might make for a visitor that says, man, I sure like that other church where I can get rid of my kids for a little while and go study the Bible. And they say, I'm not up for this church. Well, love the chance to engage somebody in that setting. I realize we have people come and go each week who will, will engage something like that and go, no, man, I like that other church where I can just drop them off. When given the choice of easy, like no kids in adult Bible studies, and hard, having kids and youth sitting with their families in study, we're likely going to go with the hard. Likely. One of the specific things that we're doing as a church is we're going to phase out our Bible study hour at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We're not just going to do away with it, though. It's going to be replaced with something different, something that we believe to be better. Is it good? Yes. Ask those who have been part of that 9 o'clock Bible study hour for decades. Has God used that? Yes. Could there be something better? We believe there is. So over the course of the fall and the spring, this fall actually we're phasing out two of our classes, dissolving them and reforming them into five or six small groups. They will be led by small group shepherds and co-shepherds. And then by the spring, we're going to do that with the rest of the church. And we'll eventually have 15, possibly 20 different small groups led by small group shepherds and co-shepherds. And these groups will be made up of five or six families likely, maybe as small as four families. But there'll be families that are doing as a group what we've been charging shepherds with doing daily, weekly in your own homes. Responding to the message that God gave us corporately on Sunday morning. And doing what we can to walk in that message. It's not some parallel speech. It's fuel for who we are. It is identifying and shaping who we are as a people. 
So if we can gather as small groups of families and know and be known and break down walls and not come up here and drop our kids off at 9 a.m., but take them with us. Maybe on a Monday night, you gather in somebody's home and you teach the kids too in the same setting. And you pray together and you sing together and you think about some of the household things that I described a few minutes ago. You do those things together as a little small chunk of the church. Walking without walls, walking without lines. It will likely be part of our membership renewal in March as required for membership, that you're part of one of these. I know how much people hate required. Membership means something. It means something. Covenants are important. And we will likely be weaving that into our covenant come March. The cross has already achieved this sort of community. We just want to walk in what's already been achieved. We want to be obedient to walk in whatever violence it might do to people's expectations or ideas of what's best. We want the truth, the word, to shape who we are as a people. We want to stay in step with the spirit that already indwells us, being part of a people that are already created, like the fiber and the rebar of the church. I'll tell you right now, it may seem like kind of a, Man, that was really a high view of all this, this message that you unpacked, and then all you're going to do is phase out the 9 a.m. Bible study hour? Hmm. I want you to understand the gravity of what we're talking about. We're talking about 15 to 20 men, and maybe double that if we're talking about our co-shepherds also, who aren't currently serving as shepherds in small groups, who will be charged and encouraged and led and equipped to step up and lead a small group. Men in here, it likely, if you're a man and you're a member, you're likely being considered for that. <laughs> Everybody swallowing hard? Mm. And what we're talking about is not just showing up at somebody's house on a Monday night and leading them through a 10-minute study. We're talking about being kind of a shepherd and walking with them. We're going to have, in, in each class, we're also going to have either a deacon or an elder. So we'll have church leadership engaging each of these classes too. See, part of the problem is some of y'all are engaging the church really intentionally and really aggressively, knowing and being known, but a lot of you aren't. And if this is true, then you need to be. You need to be involved in the fiber. You need to be known and being known and knowing. You need to be engaging and being engaged. You need to be crossways with somebody who has a different problem than you've got. Because you've got something to offer them. And we're built into this mansion. Stones fitted together. So we're going to do our best to walk in this. More to develop on that. You'll hear more details this fall. The reason we're going with just five groups, really two classes that are kind of being shaped into these small groups, is we want to have kind of an experience base. Something that hit us the other night as we met as elders is we don't want to drop our church in this thing and just say, Swim! We want to try and have some sort of experience base and some sort of learning curve that we don't have to take everyone through. It's really out of tenderness for y'all that we want to do this progressively and carefully and wisely. So this will unfold over the course of the fall and spring. Now something we're going to do as a church in these next couple minutes in response to this cross is we're going to have the Lord's Supper together. I'm going to share a passage with you and then I'll have the elders come up 
This passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Just listen to this passage as I read it. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers. This fits with our, our message this morning. He's speaking to those who worshipped Aphrodite formerly. He's calling them brothers. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers, he's referring to Abraham as our our fathers and Moses and these other guys were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did Do not become idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and they rose up to play. That'd be a bummer of a way to put an epitaph on your gravestone. He sat down to eat and drink and he rose up to play. Is that the summation of your life? We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to a sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, that we're about to partake in, is is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? That word participation is koinonia. It's fellowship. We are fellowshipping in the blood of Christ as we take this cup. The bread that we break is not, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? May I know that. Leviticus, part of the sacrificial system, when you sacrificed your lamb or goat, you had a meal with the priest. You ate part of it. You sat with God and had a meal. That's what we're doing in the Lord's Supper right now. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food is offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Man, you could just think of other passages that connect with that. Can you possibly serve two masters? Do you think you can drink the cup of the world and come drink this cup also? When we drink this cup, we are participating in Christ. We're swearing our allegiance and everything that we are to Christ and Christ alone. The nation of Israel had God's nourishment But they did not eat it in faith. They practiced idolatry. They played. They ate and drank. And they just got up and played. They practiced sexual immorality. They tested Christ and they grumbled. What Paul is saying, if you want to summarize it, is it didn't reconcile with who they were. 
What they did did not reconcile with who they were. We need to know before we take this cup that we fellowship with what we eat. That's a great picture of you are what you eat. We engage what we imbibe. As we dine together on Christ spiritually through the bread and the cup, we fellowship with Him. We dine with God through the sacrifices that these things represent. So we need to consider if we have other gods we're dining with and on. And we need to repent right now before you even put it to your lips. Other gods that we may serve and imbibe and eat. Money. Comfort. Time. Some of you may have heard this thing talking about a Bible study meeting on a Monday night or a Thursday night or a Saturday morning and going, oh, I don't have time for that. You worshiping time? You have such a high view of your time that you have such a low view of the church and their gatherings? Sports, TV, we can worship safety. We can even worship food itself. You might think that's extreme. How could you possibly do that? Here's a good test for you. Whatever you look to when you're troubled can potentially be an idol if it's not God. Whatever you medicate with. Whenever you're sad and you go shopping. Whenever you're sad and run to the cupboard. I know what that looks like. As we dine together as one people, pray that God would open our eyes if we are provoking Him to jealousy by eating other offerings in addition to this. Because it should be just this. Now before we pass out the bread and the cup, I want to ask you to examine yourselves and consider what I just said. If you are worshiping other idols, you need to confess that before Him. You need to reconcile with Him right now in these next few minutes as we're preparing these elements and starting to distribute them. Maybe as you're taking one in your hand, ask Him, say, Lord, show me where I may be crossways with you. Show me, show me where I may be worshiping something that's not you. Show me what I may be medicating with that's not you. Reconcile with Him right now. I want to encourage you, too, to not take this bread and this cup if you're not believing on Christ as your Savior and Lord. Question I asked in the baptism pool, asked Jeremy last week. Brett asked his son, same question. Do you have any other hope of being saved apart from Christ alone? If you think you do, don't take this cup. I'd like to talk with you and show you how you don't. But if you're believing on Christ as your Savior and Lord, you're invited to take this cup with us and this bread. Let me have the elders come on up. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me.